You're listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. Placenta Some women ate theirs, but I buried mine Beneath the black waters at Wren's Nest with a steel shovel on my bare fingers, delivered it back to the subterranean fires. It was a gorgeous, fecund thing, mechanical but carnal. Vined like a beast's heart, it smeared my hands burgundy, my mouth with the starry gut punch of our first kiss. Blood ablation, the white of it knocked the breath from me. When I cradled it above its grave, it was crawling with jewels, trilobites and brachiopods, blinking eyes which saw only briny hot darkness and flood upon flashing flood of creation. The land moaned as I knelt, parting as seams, the chamber within soot and pearl. I spoke his name and spat on the plot. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Scottish Poetry Library's podcast series. My name is Colin Waters and I'll be your host for the next 30 minutes. Today we present an interview with Liz Berry, which was recorded in March at Stanza, Scotland's Poetry Festival. Liz was born in the Black Country, which is also the title of her first collection of poems, published by Chateau in 2014. It quickly and justly provoked a chorus of praise. It was a Poetry Book Society recommendation received a Somerset Mom Award and won the Geoffrey Faber Memorial Award, as well as a forward prize for Best First Collection in 2014. The collection is characterised by poems written in the Black Country dialect, and it was fascinating for me as a Scot to talk to Liz, as you'll hear, about using dialect or local language and whether the experience was different for a Scot and for an English person. Not least because Liz lived in Edinburgh while training to be a teacher and is familiar with contemporary poets writing in Scots. I should mention that her recent pamphlet, The Republic of Motherhood, was a Poetry Book Society pamphlet choice and was shortlisted for the Michael Marks Award, while its title poem won the Forward Prize for Best Single Poem in 2018. Now, a small apology before we start. We recorded the interview in a changing room in the Byer Theatre in St Andrews, it's a lively, bustling venue, meaning you will occasionally hear a door slam, but only occasionally. I trust that won't spoil the experience too much. So settle in for about, as I say, 30 minutes of chat, when we'll be talking about the lack of poetry that tells the truth about the experience of childbirth and reading, the black country accent, and a shared love of pigeons. So I want to start by asking you about your use of dialect, which is obviously a great interest to Scots. And I've read that you believe dialect allows us to conjure in our mouths the voices of people no longer with us. Is language a sort of cultural fossil record? That's a beautiful idea of it being like a fossil, because when I've spoken about using black country dialect and vernacular language, I've often spoken about it as a kind of digging in and a, a sort of pulling out this word hoard. You know, I was thinking of the Staffordshire hoard in my head, under all this muck, this beautiful gleaming stuff. And that's very much the way I feel about black country dialect, although lots of it's still being very fluently spoken in the area where I grew up. Actually, lots of words, like in all dialects, have been lost 
have become archaic. And so there's something incredibly pleasurable about being able to pluck some of those words and hand them forwards the way that we've always handed words and ideas and stories forwards through poems and songs. And so that's partly my fascination with it, of what's gone before, but also I'm really enchanted by dialect as it is now. We often hear people saying, oh, it's the end of dialect, you know, language is becoming more and more similar in lots of ways it is but also language is a really sinuous shifting inventive thing so you go into any playground in any area or any inner city and you hear this amazing rich crazy dialect being spoken by kids with a mix of their home words their home languages words that seem to only belong to children and then disappear out of their dialects as they grow up and i think there's enormous pleasure to be found in that. You studied in Edinburgh. I did, yeah. Did you encounter much sort of Scottish dialect poetry? I better be careful when I say because Scots insist that Scots yes. is an actual language and not a dialect. Well, but you know, regional words, local words, you yeah. know, that sort of energy that people take from them and the enjoyment of them. I did. One of the things I studied as part of my degree was English literature and English language. So we did quite a lot of Scots and sociolinguistics. And I also lived with loads of girls from the West Coast. <laughs> so I heard loads of beautiful words there. And I've always been really inspired by poets that use Scots language so beautifully in their writing. So I often talk about a book, perhaps the book that inspired me most when I was writing Black Country was Kathleen Jamie's The Queen of Sheba. And that really effortless, fresh, kind of bold way that she uses Scots and then also vernacular in a really contemporary way. So did you start writing poetry in Edinburgh? Had it been something you were doing before then? I've always loved poems ever since I was little. So I've probably been writing, like lots of poets, like secretly since I was a child. And I wrote a little bit at university. There was a brilliant poet in residence at the time, Dillis Rose. Oh, yeah. Who had a tiny workshop group. I think like four people used to come on a Wednesday afternoon. And I was one of them. And she was incredibly encouraging. And I... Yeah, and so I really enjoyed that and went to events and I spent a lot of time haunting and that feels the right word for it, the poetry library. Oh yes. <laughs> um, especially when I did teacher training at Murray House, which is just around the corner. Mm. So I'd go to my primary teaching lectures and then I'd be sneaking back in through the poetry library on the way. Dialect or regional language in Scotland has quite a sort of tradition and history thanks to Robert Burns. Mm -hmm. So when you started out writing in England, obviously there's a tradition there as well, but did you fa face any resistance from readers or people who were doubtful about whether it was something you could pull off? I think I myself had a lot of doubts about whether it was something I could pull off because certainly writing in black country dialect, nobody was really doing that with lyric poetry. Mm. So there's lots of comic verse or narrative verse in black country dialect, the kind of thing you might read in a local paper or a magazine. But no one was using it to write lyric poems or, or to just use it in a more contemporary way. And so I wasn't sure I could pull it off. But you've got to be bold, haven't you? And you've got to try. And, and the more I thought about it and the more I started doing it, the more important it became for me and it became quite a political thing. As well as taking great joy in the language, the black country is a region with a much maligned accent and dialect. So it's always considered one of the ugliest voices in the British Isles. It, whenever it appears in the media, on the radio or television, it's always associated with the speaker being uneducated, what I would think of as thick, 
um, ineloquent, um, a comic character. It's never associated with eloquence, with poetry, with this rich emotional life. So I wanted to sort of seize it and, and show it in a new way, to see if I could show it in a new way, if people would go for it. I wasn't sure if they yeah. would. <laughs> It's gone all right so far. <laughs> okay. Will you pass what you poem? So this is a poem called Bobola, and the Bobola is a really beautiful, old-fashioned Birmingham black country word for a moth. And you mentioned this before, this idea that when we say a word, it allows us to bring the voices of the dead, of people we've lost, back into our mouths. And that reminds me of the lovely old myth about moths, that they carry the souls of the dead back to us. Bobola. Darkling herald, see a flower face on a waning moon and spake a name aloud to conjure the voice of one you loved and let slip through the wingles of death in the owl light. When longing shines through your bones like a bare bulb, she'll come for you. Little psyche bringing missives from the murmuring dark, she comes to all the night birds. Cuckoos, thieves, the oldens and the babbies in their dim-lit wombs. The boy, riding his bike up Beacon Hill, heart thundering like a strange summer storm. And the messages she carries in a slow, soft flight. Too tender to speak of, too heart-sore. But this, I am waiting. The love that lit the darkness between us has not been lost. When you're writing a poem and you're deciding, should I use some dialect in this mm -hmm. or should I use a more formal version of English? Mm -hmm. Do you decide on purely on sound or rhythm or do you, is it a feeling? You know, when you're using dialect, is it because you want to conjure up a feeling? How does it work? Yeah, I think you've, you've got it with this idea of it being a feeling. Because I think vernacular language can elicit all sorts of emotions and responses. For me, I think it's a really tender thing. So often I use it if I kind of want to convey that sort of tenderness or that warmth or this idea of familiarity or easiness. And then other times it's because you want the language to create this sense of it being strange, of something un unusual, this idea of the bob owl, this slightly sort of eerie nighttime creature visiting. Even one of the words in the poem, cuckoos, is a really old-fashioned word for lovers or sweethearts. Just these sort of odd little dark words. And other times it's because you want it to be sort of guttural and, and rude. Like I've got a poem about a, a sow, a pig, a woman, and, it, and, and then the dialect's kind of rude and bawdy and, you know, two fingers up kind of, <laughs> kind of feeling that I wanted to create. I've been raking about your past interviews. You were talking about a lack of knowledge about the black country mm -hmm. and the wider culture. You know, some, some writers feel burdened by having to represent an area, some feel liberated and it gives them their voice. Um, how do you, you, you spoke about being able to turn that ignorance of the black country to your advantage. I wonder if you could talk a bit more about that. The good thing about coming from an area which people know very little about is it kind of allows you to be inventive and playful. I think what little people do know of the black country, and again, it is very little, um, allows you to fill in all the stuff around the margins. Mm. You're free to invent things, make things up, create this kind of mythology for it. 
you know, play around with its folklore, with its characters. And also when people think about the black country, they most predominantly think about industries. So they think about men and working men. They seldom think about women. And we seldom hear about the lives of those women or the, their voices or their families or their dreams. And that's something I'm particularly interested in in poems. I think being a woman from the black country, you're even more free in a sense that no one associates mm. that area with sort of femininity or um, with a female voice. Quite often you draw on, on myth as well mm. in your, your poems, although, um, you know, this, I think the first poem in the collection is about a woman or turning into a bird, mm-hmm. which, you know, if you've read, if you've got a reasonable <laughs> you're, you're going to think Ovid or yeah. Angela Carter. Yeah. I wondered what sort of role does myth um, fulfil in your imagination? Bear in mind, it's not just you know your classic Greek myths mm-hmm. that you, you talk about. You, I guess, there's like local myths and mm-hmm. almost myths of your own invention as well. Do you like that sort of playfulness that you can have with myth? You know, that sort of template that you can then run a million miles with as well. I do. You mentioned Angela Carter, and she's one of my favourites, and I love her. Could I think of it like her redemptive use of myth? Mm. So uh, traditionally, myths and fairy stories, women are having a terrible time, yeah. like just girls are having a dreadful, dreadful time. So I like this idea of being able to take those myths and retell them in a way that frees those women to be bold or transgressive or wild, outspoken. Um, and it does, it gives you brilliant imagery that's familiar to everyone, and then you can twist that yeah. knife, which is a really nice thing. Although, I kind of on the opposite side of things, I've just been reading um, Vertigo and Ghost by the poet Fiona Benson, who draws upon um, Greek myth and the roles of women in it in like a completely different way, a really sort of searing, painful way. So I suppose that's the opposite way that you can use myth as sort of a woman writer. Talking of sort of one of the ways that you change myths and, mm-hmm. and, and use them, I mean, you have a really great poem about, which takes the red shoes. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot to dig into mm-hmm. with that, isn't there? I mean, um, the way in which, basically, in the original version of it, the woman is punished, I guess, mm-hmm. for wanting to dance. Mm-hmm. I mean, how did you process that and make it into your own? I think I just wanted to give it a very contemporary setting. Mm. It seems lots of ways a parable about being a young woman and about wanting things and she's punished because she loves dancing and also because what she wants more than anything is these really beautiful red shoes so she's punished for really wanting something and acting upon it so I wanted to put it in a contemporary way she's just like a schoolgirl from a comprehensive girls school and I just was so so saddened and tired of stories in which terrible things happen to girls that dared to want something so I thought actually in a poem you can be you're completely powerful and completely free. See, I wanted to use that power and that freedom to, to give it a different ending, to give that girl a different ending, to send her off, to let her dodge the terrible things waiting to befall her. Yeah, I mean, The Red Shoes is particularly a cruel story in its original version, because what's more joyous and freeing and liberating than dancing? Yeah. And it's turned completely against the character. So it's nice to have a, a twist on that and, and sort of... Correct the record, as it were. The red shoes. Crimson. Like flames. Like the first sear of blood that came in the night and daubed a heart on my bedsheets. They made blushes look pale. 
On Saturdays I pressed my lips to the steamy glass of the shoe shop window and blew them a kiss. I was mad for their patent. Rubies that glistened up her dress, flushed thighs with fever. I was tired of childhood, black and navy. I smashed the belly of the fat piggy bank and stole ten pounds from my mother's purse. Waltzed to school in them, legs cocky. As girls in the science block lifted their eyes from pipettes and streamed from the lab to watch me dance, some girls clapped. Miss Weatherby rang my mother to take me home, but I skipped through the playground, out of the gates that led to the terraces, the parcels of garden, where rickety sheds burst into flames as my shoes grazed them. By the factory, I danced a rumba, drew lads whistling from the high windows, catcalling my name into the rosy smoke. I tore my school skirt, threw my tie in the gutter, felt my voice hatching in my throat as I danced through the waste ground to the filthy canal. There the sky darkened. The hedges became copses, fierce with nettles. In the branches, a single glove hung from the brambles. The dance grew wild. A tarantella through the forest's darkness, the steps flowing like a thick pulse of blood. I heard the screams of girls who had danced before me. Their ankles severed, toes still tapping, white as wounded doves. But I was not their kind. I outdanced the axe. The silent woodcutter, the traps waiting with rusty jaws. I danced so fast my shoes scorched the air and the sun laid the sky down crimson at my feet. I guess on the subject of hatching, I suppose, so if we're talking about transformations, mm. becoming a mother is mm. quite a, uh, a transformation and that's the subject to your latest pamphlet, The Republic yeah. in Motherhood. What was the genesis of the poems? What inspired you? When my first son was born, he's now five, I just felt profoundly shocked. There's no other word for it. I've talked about before, feeling as if my life had just been pulled from under my feet and flung off into the wind. And in that really difficult, lonely, strange, wild time, I tried to find poems about the experience, poems that were speak about the experience, about the intense loneliness or the sorrow or the joy and they were really hard to find. There were lots of poems about beautiful babies, lots of poems about breastfeeding, but very few poems that kind of touched on that strange mix of joy and anguish. And so for a while I didn't write anything. I thought maybe there's a reason no one's writing those poems. Maybe it's because it's something to be ashamed of or it's certainly not the stuff of poetry. But then a few years later when I was I had a toddler and then was pregnant again with my second son, I kind of got that wild fury, that white heat mm. that I had about the black country. Yes. And I thought, hang on, this is not good enough. I, I'm going to write these poems and I'm going to say it. And lots of them were really hard poems to write. But I thought, if in writing them, they'll find even just one other mother and make her feel 
less alone or somehow understood that she had companionship in that strange wild time then it would have been worth it mm. and that's how the poems came together they were they're sort of they're late night poems poems written in bursts and when one child's asleep and one child's out and about and so they're written in that in that kind of furious white heat mm. and that's why they're their own little strange intense universe in the pamphlet the Republic of Motherhood. I crossed the border into the Republic of Motherhood and found it a queendom, a wild queendom. I handed over my clothes and took its uniform, its dressing gown and undergarments, a cardigan soft as a creature, smelling of birth and milk. And I lay down in Motherhood's bed, the bed I had made, but could not sleep in. For I was called at once to work in the factory of motherhood. The L shift. The graveyard shift. Feeding, cleaning, loving, feeding. I walked home. Heart sore through pale streets. The coins of motherhood singing in my pockets. Then I soaked my spindle bones in the chill municipal baths of motherhood. Watching strands of my hair float from my fingers. Each day, I push my pram through freeze and blossom down the wide boulevards of motherhood, where poplars bent their branches to stroke my brow. I stood with my sisters in the queues of motherhood, the weighing clinic, the supermarket, waiting for its bureaucracies to open their doors. As required, I stood beneath the flag of motherhood, opened my mouth although I did not know the anthem. When darkness fell, I pushed my pram home again. By lamplight wrote urgent letters of complaint to the Department of Motherhood, but received no response. I grew sick and was healed in the hospitals of motherhood, with their long closed isolation wards and narrow beds watched over by a fat moon. The doctors were slender and efficient. And when I was well, they gave me my pram again so I could stare at the daffodils in the parks of motherhood while winds pierced my breasts like silver arrows. In snowfall, I haunted motherhood cemeteries, the sweet fallen beneath my feet. Our lady of the birth trauma, our lady of psychosis. I wanted to speak to them. Tell them I understood, but the words came out scrambled. So I knelt instead and prayed in the chapel of motherhood. Prayed for that whole wild fucking queendom. Its sorrow, its unbearable skinless beauty and all the souls that were in it. I prayed and prayed until my voice was a night cry. Sunlight pixelating my face like a kaleidoscope. I have a personal question here, uh, or sort of semi-personal, and yeah. um, I'm interested in your poems about pigeons. Oh, are you? Well, my dad, until recently, had to retire, but he was a pigeon fancier. Oh, So beautiful. I grew up around pigeons quite yeah. a lot. Not, not tumblers or anything like that, yeah. but racing pigeons, oh. uh, which my dad used to call athletes of the sky beautiful yeah 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 because he was very keen to distinguish racing homing pigeons mm -hmm. the ones that he had from like street pigeons or feral yeah. pigeons yeah 
What, what's your affinity with pigeons in, in general? What are you, why are you attracted to writing about them? I love pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I've got a lot of affection for them. Even though they're a bird beloved by you know, sort of many regions and many echelons of society, they seem to be in so many ways like a Midlands bird. It, the Birmingham Roller poem that I write about is obviously originally bred in the Midlands. But what I love about them is they're these really ordinary grey-looking, or, you know, grey, bluey-white-looking birds. They look unspectacular, but they can perform amazing things. Oh, yes. The acrobats of the sky, the athletes of the sky. And they just elicit such devotion amongst people that care for them, look after them. So I've always been really fascinated by pigeons. And where I grew up in the Black Country in Birmingham, there was many, many pigeon lofts. There's still a few. And... When I was just starting to write the poems for the Republic of Motherhood, I went to visit a pigeon loft, and that was the first time I'd actually held one. And it's maybe a little bit like your dad's loft, because these were at home in pigeons, racing pigeons. Looked after by an older man who'd been racing all his life, Bill, who just looked after them with such devotion and had such respect for them and I saw the little clocks. Mm. Do you know the, oh, the, yes, yes, child, the little clocks? The, the... For people who might not know about this, oh. when you're racing pigeons, yeah. when you're about to send them off, all the pigeon men synchronise these sort of special clocks mm-hmm. and when a pigeon arrives home, they have a thimble on them which you, you put into the machine, you crank it and then that gives you an accurate timing for when your pigeon arrived home and that's how you determine who wins a pigeon race. And what could be more poetic than that? <laughs> the, 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 I think they're just really enchanting creatures. I'm also very much in love with things that we kind of look at every day but don't notice mm. as fascinating. They're yeah. kind of the, un, they're the underdogs, aren't they? Along with goals, probably. Um, but I think it's the affection that they bring out in people that kind of dedicate yes. their lives to them. Did your dad try and... Encourage you to... Yes, he did. And were you not tempted? I was more interested in watching Star Wars. Oh. <laughs> I didn't really have that, that... I mean, if you're going to be a successful pigeon man, like my dad mm-hmm. was, you have to put in so many hours. Yeah. I mean, yeah. my dad was up at five o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And, you know, I was about six or seven. I wasn't going to be getting up at that no. time. But I did once... I mean, one of the things I find fascinating about mm-hmm. pigeons is how they find their way home yeah. over hundreds and hundreds of miles yeah. and they still don't know why there's theories but there's no reason no known reason for why they do it and I once asked my dad I said why why do your pigeons keep coming home and he goes love oh. he said I love them and they love me so they come back to me and I thought that's a very nice poetic yeah. way to think about it. I don't know if it's true but I've heard lots of people say a something similar but also that pigeons became a way for men in particular that weren't able to express love or affection otherwise to have an outlet for mm. showing love. So it's saying that often people that either had pigeons or that had a dog, a mongrel, a whippet or something would be so loving and tender to their creatures in a way that, they, that it wasn't acceptable to express yeah. that kind of affection verbally to your partner, to your children, to friends. Um, but you're allowed to be very, very tender towards your birds or towards very tender. your pet. Do you know what I've heard, though? Like especially in urban areas, migrants from different countries, so Eastern European mm. countries and from countries originally like India and Pakistan, 
very much into pigeons. Mm. So there's been there's kind of been new new communities of pigeon lovers and pigeon fanciers springing mm. up in the cities. Now where I live in Birmingham, on the walk home from school, somebody's got a loft because they always they must always fly their pigeons at the same time every yeah, day. Yeah. I'm desperate to know who it is. <laughs> like we, we we call them the Springfield Road pigeons. Me and my kids always like yeah. they're out, they're out. But whose are they? Yeah, whose are they yeah. indeed? Well, that wraps it up for another episode in our podcast series. Many thanks to Liz Berry for making herself available for the interview. A reminder, her debut, Black Country, and her pamphlet, The Republic of Motherhood, are both excellent and published by Chato. Thanks also to Stanza, Scotland's Poetry Festival, and especially to Annie Richardson, who put me in touch with Liz and sorted out the venue for the interview. I must say thank you to Will Campbell for writing, performing and recording the theme tune that you hear at the start and at the end of the episode. And finally, dear listener, thank you for listening to our podcast. We'll have another one next month. Before I sign off, a reminder of the various ways that you can keep in touch with the SPL between podcasts. So, of course, we do Twitter at By Leaves We Live. That's our Twitter tag. You can find us that way. We have a Facebook page. Simply type in Scottish Poetry Library. I'm sure that'll take you to the relevant page on Facebook. And we do Instagram as well. We're at SPL Scotland, if memory serves. And of course, we have a website where you can come and uh, see the, the general glory of the SPL online. And that can be found at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk. It only remains for me to say that before the episode wraps up, we have one more poem by Liz Berry, and it's on the subject of pigeons. Birmingham Roller. We spent our lives down in the blackness. Those birds brought us up to the light. Jim Sherrill tumbling pigeons in the black country. Wench, you're the colour of our town. Concrete, steel, oily rainbow with the cut. Our streets are in your wings. Our factory chimneys, plumes on your chest. Your hearts the china, our old girls, dust in their tranquilment cabinets. Bread to dazzling. In backyards. By men whose arms grew soft as feathers just to touch you. Cradle you from egg through each jet defying tumble. Little acrobats of the terraces. When winged when we gaze at you, jimmick in the breeze, somersaulting through the white breath prayer of January, and rolling back up like a babby's yo-yo, caught by the open donny of the clouds. Thank you for downloading this Scottish Poetry Library podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook. <laughs>